Welcome to another episode of the South Florida Entrepreneurs on Fire podcast, brought to you by the Entrepreneurs Organization of South Florida. Welcome to the South Florida Entrepreneurs Fire on podcast, where we have the opportunity to sit down with accomplished entrepreneurs while collectively learning from one another through experience sharing and fueling the South Florida entrepreneurial spirit. I'm interviewing Richard Weisman, president at the, the chairman of the board of the Learning Experience. Uh, Richard, uh, I would love to hear from you and if you can tell us a little bit about uh, your company's history and growth since it was fun, uh, founded in uh, 1980. Sure. Actually, the company we are today was founded in 2002. Um, but my family had a company uh, that actually had the exact same name uh, that was in 1980. Uh, when I was still in high school, uh, it was a preschool uh, company that was my uh, parents as a side business. And I started as a janitor cleaning toilets and worked my way up from there. Uh, we had then formed another company uh, and were partners with my parents in 1987 in a company called Tudor Time that we had built uh, fairly large to about uh, 200 plus locations and then my uh, father had sold an interest and uh, retired from the company in 97 and I retired as CEO of the company in 99 uh, went to work in investment banking business and then uh, reformed the learning experience brand which was my parents first name of their center um, in 2002 that's great and, and I'm sending you have more than 200 locations today and um, maybe, yeah, go ahead. Um, we have 100, we'll leave this year in 2015 with about 180 operating units, and we actually have 72, as I speak to you right now, 72 additional centers in some form of construction or development in about 25 states. That's great. Uh, and can you share with us some of the uh, challenges and key learnings that you experienced since, say, the start of the Great Recession in 2008? It's funny because the company's name is a learning experience, so I, I tell everybody I, I have a learning experience every day uh, running a company. But since this is the second time that I have built a company um, in, our, in our industry, a preschool, uh, fairly large, I have experienced a significant amount of recessions and credit crunches and governmental interferences. So it's something not new. If you do something long enough, you, you go through that, that cycle, which is typically over seven, year, seven years, um, that a company faces, whether it's our industry or any industry. Our business in particular, it has been, in the 30 years I've been doing it, has been recession resistant. Although you may take different types of what I would call fluid actions to be responsive to the markets and what may be thrown at you, and each type of economy may have its little points of difference over the previous economy or recession, um, our company has historically been resistant to any type of economic climate that has, in fact, uh, put a damper on our growth. Because if I look at 2008, 9, 10, 11, and 12 as the height of this, um, you know, whether you call it depression or recession, um, we continue to experience uh, top and bottom line growth of about 23% a year. We continue to open new stores of about, during that period of time, between 15 and 18 new stores a year. And so a majority of our growth was during the height 
of the bad economy. So it clearly represented the fact that we were recession resistant and that our model does do well in bad times. I also will indicate that, you know, it is very appealing to me. Even though it's tough and even though people complain and the height of the bad economy, that I actually think it's exceptionally prudent and exceptionally skillful of any executive to actually build their company during the worst of times. You know, anybody can build their company in the best of times. It's it's the worst of times that try the executive team and try your brand and try your model. Um, will it survive? And so I'm very happy to say that if we could facilitate a growth and, ha- and did facilitate a growth of a continuous 23% a year top and bottom line growth um, during the worst of times, then the company is very well positioned with an exceptionally solid footprint uh, to grow for a long period of time and is really going to be something that will be around hopefully way past my, uh, my generations. No, and that, that absolutely makes a lot of sense. Uh, I agree 100%. Um, and would you say that in the have you had any major shifts in strategy or in your business model during during let's say those last uh, ten years or so? Um, and I apologize if I heard the question correctly. Are you asking did I have any change in strategy? Yeah, any 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 major shifts in strategy or 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 in your business model that that you know that contributed to, towards that growth that you've had. I mean, you've had some substantial growth over that, over that period of time. Sure. Well, listen, you know, I think any company that, that's that been around for a decade, any company that's been around for two decades, three decades, whatever the decades they've been around, should always have um, a new vibrant strategy to facilitate the times. And so, you know, I wouldn't tell you that I had a change in strategy as much as I had a lot of fluidness in the strategy. And I had a lot of wiggle room for adjustment in the strategy without modifying the ultimate goals that were, were set out. And, and that would go to the heart of what technology has presented us and what the opportunity, opportunity of technology presents in maintaining SG&A costs, maintaining growth costs, uh, really being able to drill down on the economics of your model um, that you can afford today that you couldn't, you couldn't have accomplished 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. So one of the things I think was a key component to the ability to facilitate growth was our clear insight while having a lot of guts that during the worst of times spending a huge amount of money in capex expenditure and so while a lot of our competitors just ceased growth or a lot of our competitors did not reinvest in their brand or their technology we in fact did and you know we spent a million dollars a year for our small little company at the time um, and continue to spend it. And so we were able to reinvest in technology and reinvest in the brand and our culture and, and our personnel um, while keeping SG&A flat um, because we were giving more anim- anim- more information flow to, to our current, cl- current employees. And what I, what I, to support that and why I believed it during the height of the times was that while we had to maintain our expenses and while in the worst of times, you know, it's about the pennies and not necessarily the dollars. You've got to add every penny to save a company during the worst of times and facilitate growth. What we said is we're not going to add staff. We're going to keep SG&A flat, which we did for five years. Um, and we're going to take that excess capital instead of increasing SG&A, and we're going to invest in technology to give resources 
to the current personnel we had about getting access to information about our model, about our business, to the very micro part, part of the business in a very speedy and easy format so they can absorb more information and be very proactive about the business. So I, I would say that technology and growth of technology has permitted us to actually facilitate growth while maintaining SG&A. That wasn't so much a change in strategy as much as an opportunity in strategy. So economies and growth in technology do permit opportunities you may have not otherwise had. So by example, while we're growing and while 2008, 9, 10, you want to maintain your expenses and hold your SG&A flat, you did, I did have the luxury of our software and hardware having drastic decreases in cost. And so we were able to implement strategies very quickly without increasing SG&A because we could afford the technology we couldn't otherwise afford 10 years ago. And so that, that just really presents itself. So I, I think for any executive, it's clearly important to never lose sight of your goals and affirmations and to go ahead and figure out how to accomplish goals and affirmations with the resources that are available during that period of time. And we were just really able to do that and really were insightful and I, I compliment our entire management team for doing that. That's great. And, um, you know, with regards to technology, I mean, did it have an impact on or, or was technology also important in the type of content and, and, and educational programs that, that led to um, the continued success? Absolutely. I, you know, tech, one of the things I think if you research our company, you would find out from whether it's our competitors or whether it's anybody that knows of us or researches this industry, um, Wall Street, whoever comes to this industry. We're known for leading the industry, in my opinion, on technology and the implementation of technology to our curriculum and that delivery system to a young population because we're from you know, infants to kindergarten. And so we were able to, I think, bring what is a very stagnant industry and that still is you know, photocopying materials and still teaching ABCs and 123s. We were able to say, hey, you know, a child is not the component of the traditional education system in ABC 123s. The definition of a, of, a, of a whole child is all the components, which goes into sports, it goes into social environments, it goes into etiquette, it goes into, you know, do the, are they going to be, you know, a good person in society? You know, focus on all forms of that. Delivery, can we deliver it in, in a format that has not been seen in our industry relative to something that a child will be able to implement? So we have already developed and are rolling out and have rolled out. We have 58 children's apps that match our curriculum. We have e-books. We have an entire whiteboard technology, seven-foot electronic boards in schools that we directly connect here at corporate office, and we send in an entire children's television series and have our characters, 36 characters, actually come to life in cartoon form and real, realist, and real life form. And so we just continue to lead the industry, and I think on the forefront of, of technology, and, and that is something we invested in and our competitors just have not. Yeah, and it sounds like it's something that's continually, continually evolving and, and, and it does change reg regularly. It's not something that stays constant for, for a number of years or anything like that. Absolutely, and thank God for me. I have ADD, so I get bored very quickly if we want to change. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's a common trend amongst uh, entrepreneurs, I'm sure. Um, 
All right. So with regards to um, let's talk a little bit about, for example, real estate. Um, do you own some of your locations or do you rent all of your locations? So we have a model for, for real estate, which is build a suit off balance sheet development model. Um, and at, you know, at any given time, our centers cost between 2.2 to $3.5 million a piece. Um, we were able to facilitate a growth strategy. Uh, even when we were small with no balance sheet, we were able to create a growth strategy uh, with significantly large real estate players around the country to develop and build our 700 pages of specification product. Um, they're 10,000 square foot plus units, and, they're, and we're very, very brand conscious. So they're almost identical in all cases. Um, and so that is a strategy that's worked very well for us. The truth of the matter is, the type of real estate strategy that I have implemented, we, I have been doing in this company with my family since 1990. So we've been doing it a long time. It is time-tested, proven model, um, and it actually thrives in the worst of times. So it works exceptionally well in, in all economies. Okay. And, and how does geography um, play into your uh, and, well, let's say geography and changing the demographics plan to your uh, future growth strategy. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is um, that we're very localized. Um, so our schools are very geared towards, although the curriculum I call it white-collar education, we cater to the bluish to gray color marketplace, which is two-income mothers and fathers. Um, mm -hmm. And we survey our parents. 85% of our parents are still married. 85% um, of our parents have four-year college degrees. 30% of our parents have a degree past four years. So we have a very educated consumer at our facility, and we focus on that. And I'm very proud of that. Um, because they really appreciate what we're, what we, what we're all about and our brand. Um, but we're very localized. And, and what I mean by that is, is that the demographics in South Florida are very different than the demographics in Orlando or the demographics in uh, Chicago. And so the differentials really doesn't play a role that the ABCs, 1, 2, 3s, and curriculum we provide in Orlando is any less than the curriculum I provide in very high-end markets, including Manhattan, exactly the same curriculum, because it is such white-collar, and we believe what's good for one child is good for all children. What the cost factor is is a direct component of real estate costs in many regards, and that drives tuitions and what we would charge. So you, know, you could have a tuition in Florida of $750, $800 in some markets, and you can go to Manhattan, and tuition is over $2,000 a month. And so, but my real estate cost is significantly higher there. My labor cost right. is significantly higher there. But my curriculum is exactly the same. So we get, we're able to create a brand that is exceptionally consistent. And really the deviating fact is a tuition model based on the cost factors in that particular marketplace, very localized. I would also say that very localized can be very micro, meaning that I, I live in Boca Raton, Florida, and our world's headquarters in Boca Raton, Florida, and, to, and this is known as a high-end market um, and wealthy market. And so tuitions in Boca Raton, Florida, may be 20% higher than three miles down the street in Deerfield Beach, Florida, or Delray, because the market just justifies a higher tuition because of the average household income. So it's very micro in a particular marketplace. Got you. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your uh, future growth plans in the next five to ten years? Um, you know, candidly, 
I, I've always been a uh, executive that believes that you should put aside your ego and never believe you're better tomorrow than you were today. You should focus on trying to be better tomorrow, but you shouldn't believe your own bull and believe you're going to be better tomorrow. So what we have done in our model and our, and our plan is assume that the historical five years is going to be applied to the future five years, that we're no better or worse than we have been in the last five years. So if we've grown at 23% a year, then we, our model assumes we continue to grow at 23% a year. Now, that's very different than the, than the belief of your affirmations, right? So as a goal or affirmation, may I have an opportunity to say, okay, can we push the envelope greater than we have today with risk mitigation and mitigate the risk associated with, with greater growth? And so we're able to say, okay, our five-year plan contemplates exactly the same growth that we've experienced over a five-year model on a historical basis, a real uh, growth model on a historical basis applied to future growth. And what we've said is, okay, let's look at how we push that model greater and, and without inherent risk. And so the model really gives me a lot of flexibility. The way we've designed it is because we're both franchise growth, company-owned store growth, as well as corporate model, meaning we provide childcare benefit programs to large corporations, over close to 500 corporations we provide childcare benefit programs to. We have an acquisition model where we can buy back franchisees, uh, inherently creating wealth for franchisees. We have an acquisition model to sell stores that are not performing by franchisees to other very successful franchisees. So we have a lot of components that allow us to mitigate risk while inherently growing. So there's two components to growth as a franchisor. <coughs> Excuse me. There's two components to growth as a franchisor. One is my balance sheet, meaning the company, Learning Experience Corp's com uh, company balance sheet and its P&L, and the growth of system-wide sales, which include all franchise operations. So we could effectively grow that 23% on a system-wide bail system-wide basis, um, but have 30 and 40 percent growth as a company basis by doing acquisitions of franchisees and never mm -hmm. changing who we are. So that's something that we play with, and we're about to start budget meetings next week. And so we'll get to see where we can pull a lever or not pull a lever. We also have an exceptional luxury, and that luxury is the opportunity to close a spigot if it's not working, meaning if company-owned stores aren't performing well or we're not a good operator company-owned stores, then we can say, okay, let's take some stores and sell them back to franchisees to allow that owner-operator model apply their, their individual input into it. Or if company-owned stores are doing exceptionally well, buy back franchisees or open new company-owned stores. So we have a lot of levers that allow us an opportunity to mitigate risk and still grow a model uh, fairly rapidly or even greater than I did on a historical basis, but never assume that we're better than we were yesterday. Yep. What, uh, what percentage of your stores are company-owned versus franchise-owned? 30% company-owned, 70% franchise. Right. And uh, how, do you, how do you say you differentiate your company from your competitors? Well, I had talked about that earlier, so I think we very, very, very much focus and push the envelope on our technology and, our, and implementing that technology within the curriculum itself. Um, and, you know, none of our competitors are doing what we're doing on a, a, what I call an entertainment front, which is taking our characters and bringing them to life and focusing on who's the, who's the customer. You know, there's a conversation to have in our industry, who's the customer. I believe our, all our competitors focus their customer on their parent. 
and we focus our customer as a child. And there's a significant differential. I mean, you just go to our websites and our competitors' websites and see who we focus on. You know, we have 36 trademark characters from Bubbles the Elephant uh, to Lenny and Lucy the Frog. I mean, go on and on. So we focus that the, the customer's experience is the child. Now, while the parent is making decisions on a financial model, what they can afford and what they can't afford, it is the child's experience that justifies whether they stay in the facility or not. It is the, it is the child's experience that will determine whether they register in that facility. If they bring a child to a facility and they want to register, really as a parent, and we all have guilt trips, and we want to do what's right for the child and what they want to do as well to keep them happy. So as long as we're safe and secure environment, we have always believed that our competitor is the child, and I believe our competitors, uh, excuse me, our, our client is the child, and I believe our competitors have really focused that the client is the parent. So I think that's a significant difference differential. And that has actually gone into the delivery mechanisms of the brand uh, from our curriculum to the way our schools are designed and the colors we use and, and how we focus our marketing efforts. So I, I think that is a huge difference. Excellent. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, in the last few years, uh, how do you go about finding the right people to help you grow your business and succeed? That's a trick question. And the reason that's a trick question, because you asked it, finding the right people. So the issue is this. You know, the child care industry um, is very different than a lot of the other businesses. And, and, and I've, I've said to anybody I've hired, if they came from the retail business or they came from the food business, you, you can't necessarily push the envelope here uh, in the child care business at the same level. We're taking care of a child, not flipping hamburgers or serving coffee. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, you flip a hamburger wrong and it lands on the floor, you might be able to put it back in the bun and no one knows it, but you flip a child wrong, everybody knows it. So at the end of the day, we're a very different um, matrix for, you know, demanding what our field does. And so I think to answer your question the best I can, it would be, I think you have to have personality. You know, you could be the smartest business person. If you don't want to put a smile on your face, you're not working in this business. It just, you don't have the right to wake up on the wrong side of the bed in this business. Um, you don't have the right to show, even to how we write our letters here at corporate office to our, to our clients. Um, and to their parents. We don't have a right not to have a smiley face when we're writing the letter because parents can read right through it and you're taking care of the child and any, any indication that you're under pressure or you're not happy, they're not leaving their child there. And so culture is everything. So the answer to the question is it is important to have a personality and be able to be part of this culture in the way we've developed this culture than it is for me to have your Harvard MBA experience. And so it's very different. So the answer as, as a CEO of this company would be maybe different if I was running a chain of uh, coffee shops. Um, but this is really about are you going to be part of this culture is, in fact, you, are you going to be accretive to the culture? Are you going to be able to have your pressure stay home with you? Are you going to be able to have a smile on your face? And do you want to have fun? You know, I'm sitting here and I, I have around my offices children's toys that we test that we want to play with. We have children's slides. Um, and, and we try to have fun in the environment because everything we do has got to be an indication of fun. How we write our letter, what we talk about in our letters, any of our communications, you've got to have culture. So. Even though Harvard MBAs are really important um, and, and having a great degree of success at other retail-type operations, um, 
I would think personality is as important. And what do you do about uh, you know retaining employees and and inspiring employees to stay with you and and grow within your business? So, um, I, I just indicated culture. So. We really, really care about the people of the team, um, and we really want them to enjoy their lives. Um, you know, as an exec CEO of this company, I have always strived, and I've matured over time. Um, you know, been doing it as long as I have. Maybe my white hair on my head um, is giving me a little bit more experience and a little bit more patience. Um, but we don't want you to come to work if you're having a bad experience in your personal life. We want you to deal with it. We want you to only come to work with a smile on your face. And there used to be a sign on our front door, which I actually think I'm putting back up, which says, no negatives beyond this point. And, and so we, although we have a handbook that says what your time off is and, and, your, and, your, um, and your sick days and everything, so it's not abused, I've never really, at the end of the day, have fixated myself on the fact that they take two-week vacation time when they're only entitled to a week and a half. We never focus on it. You have to come to work with a smile face. So I think culture is really important here. I also take everybody in the company um, all the way down almost to a center level to on a trip. And, and the trip this year, last year was Punta Cana, and this year is Costa Rica. And so we take almost 400 people on a trip this, this coming April. Um, and part of that trip is, is really just a culture trip. It, it, it's not so much can I, sh- can I you know, shove additional education down your throat. It's about, hey, can we have a drink at the bar together and talk about life and, and smile? And can I see you dance? And can we have our significant other there and get to know our families? I think that's why we've kept people so long because we care um and i really want people to have a good time i mean you know we're, we're famous for you know closing the office early and going for a drink having parties at the office you know really really want i mean we're building we're going to build a new world headquarters and we're going to have ping pong tables and pool tables and and game rooms and quiet rooms and yoga rooms i, I you have to have a great life because i'm going to spend more time with you as your CEO, then you're going to spend with your significant other. You, you're going to work most of your waking hours in this office um, or at our centers. And so you've got to enjoy coming to work. And we're in a business that allows us that opportunity. You know, taking care of a child and seeing it through the eyes of a child is very different than, than you know, dealing with a consumer who's unhappy with a pair of pants they bought at a Gap retail store. So, you know, it's really an opportunity for us to enjoy what we do and be socially responsible about it and really care about our employees. And so we have basically very, at corporate offices, have almost no turnover. At the center level, the, the administration teams have really been consistent. You know, we do have some teacher turnover. There is a degree of burnout uh, when you deal with so many children, but truth of the matter is we've really focused on minimizing that or advancing from within and giving people a future. So that's how what we've done to, I think, really enhance um, and and really create an opportunity for our, for our staff. Great. Um, you know, you touched on this briefly. Uh, uh, with all the different centers that you have in the U.S., how do you make sure that experience is consistent at, at, at each center? You know, it, it's harder. It is clearly harder for me to touch, you know, 180 locations right now um, and have my voice heard um, and maybe my excitement heard at every center. But I think we, we do a really good job. So, again, technology has allowed us that. So we have 
at every center, um, we have a, a video conferencing. So I can do a video call to every center and show them my face um, and, and my excitement. Um, we can do that through our seven-foot whiteboards. We can do that through their individual computers. We can do it on a national call at their home if I wanted to. Um, we have instant messaging uh, to all our centers. We have a policy in the company that any employee of this company or any franchisee at this company has my phone numbers. They can call me. They don't want to do it too often. They can't cry wolf too often. Um, and they know that. But I want, I, I'm intimately involved. And there's very few companies I know of our size where CEOs will actually take a phone call directly from you know, a teacher at the lowest level. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we focus on that. Um, but I think that it's both the communication skills, the technology, the type of business we're in, what we provide as the tools to deliver our curriculum, we give our, and the amount of money we invest in CapEx expenditure, re reinventing the, the centers and having constant uh, new programs and new systems and new floors and new carpeting and you know, constantly looking brand new, um, I think it allows the pride to go all the way down to the lowest levels. Great. Um, when it comes to um, marketing and advertising, um, how important is marketing and advertising in the growth of your business? You know, I, I don't want to be naive to tell you it's not important because it is important, but it's very different in our industry. Um, you can't have a sale um, on your product like uh, Bed Bath & Beyond. You know, I can't say 20% off today. Um, so that means of direct marketing and a call to action is, is much more difficult. The decision by the parent is usually a longer decision, not an instantaneous reaction decision. It is usually a two-party decision, both husband and wife. Um, and so although marketing efforts are something we focus on, on on a limited budget um, because this entire industry is not known for spending huge amounts of money. We really, I think, do a very good job with it. And so what we believe is is that you talk well of your from our existing customers is our greatest resource. So we constantly focus on the customer experience that exists today retaining our customer experience and letting them talk well. You know, we have 20-plus thousand kids a day to go to our centers. You know, if 20,000 people talk to another 20,000 people, you know, we grow our brand fairly easy. So the customer experience is clearly the initiative that we're, we, we want. Um, Internet, um, you know, and social media, you know, is sensitive. Uh, we do it. We're getting better at it. We're really not exceptional at it, but nobody in my industry is. Um, and the reason is is because it's highly sensitive. You know, we can't take pictures of kids in schools and post them on mm -hmm. Facebook. Um, and so we get a, you can't really show our customers' reactions as much as we like to. We have to get consent from parents. So there's a lot of degree of securities in that regard. So, we, we, you know, it's, it's, you, you tread lightly. Um, and you do everything possible to create the security first. But I think the one thing we can have a direct input in and a direct reaction to and a direct benefit of additional enrollment is our current customer experience. Mm -hmm. Do you rely on print media or uh, any other type of advertising to, uh, to, to grow your business? I don't even know if print media still exists. Uh, <laughs> Uh, very little print media. I mean, we start, some schools do some some localized uh, mailers. I'm not a big fan of it. Um, we, we focus on uh, customer experience, talking well 
of us to others um, and drive by and uh, you know social media and internet uh, optimization. Okay. Uh, with regards to access to capital, um, in the past 10 years, what, what have been your primary sources of funds used to grow your business? So we accessed the capital markets for the first time in 2004 um, and sold a minority stake to an educational fund, a fairly new educational fund out of New York called Quad Ventures. Um, and had a very long-term relationship with them um, and didn't raise any more capital for the company uh, from outsiders until last year, 2014. Um, the only capital we inserted into the company in 2008, we did a, a senior debt round, but only insiders. That would have been the executives, including our, the, we the Weissmans and, and, uh, and our existing investor group, a quad, and we only took money from basically ourselves, a family, and friends. Uh, we did, you know, we did a we did a six and a half million dollar round in 2004, and we did a six million dollar debt round in 2008 and 9. And so we didn't really we really developed a model that really wasn't um, exceptionally uh, cash needy. Um, the real estate model is much more cash needy because each building costs two to three million plus dollars, and so yeah. that is a model in which we get third-party real estate developers, significant real estate families, to go ahead and build our projects. So we were able to tap that market for at least the building of our projects on long-term lease basis. Um, we retapped the markets on capital um, and completed a very large financing in 2014, um, and actually had a change of control in December. Um, and that allowed us an opportunity to get access to a much larger base of capital, lines of credit, and a much more significant influence into our ability to grow the brand um, by buying franchisees back and buying other types of programs. So um, that's where we sit right now today. Great. All right, so now I'm going to ask you a few questions about you. And, uh, um, you know, we can start off with uh, how do you how do you define success? I know it's a big open question, but you know, um, if you asked me that question when I was in my 30s, I'm 51 now. So if you asked me a question when I was in the 30s, it would have been a very different answer than I define when I'm 51. So if the question is posed to me right now, which it is, at 51, I would tell you my success is the what I see in my uh, children and their success. And so no matter what I do, what I can continue to do is, as as an executive and growing my own balance sheet as an individual, um, truth of the matter is it's, I'm really focused on driving my, uh, my kids' success. I have four children, uh, three sons and a daughter. Two of my sons uh, are in business with me, um, and one son's in college. And then my daughter is just going to go to college this coming year. So um, I'm really focused on driving their success um, and hoping that I'm a, a good uh, model for them. Um, so they've seen their dad work really long hours. Um, they've seen their dad miss their, you know, their wrestling matches and their game, football games and stuff like that because they had to work. So hopefully that sacrifice they understand and hopefully – that really focused on their ability to recognize what hard work is and what the benefits are. So um, I think that's how I'd answer the question today. If you asked me when I was in my 30s, it would have all been business. It would not have been a family. It would have been all business, business, business. Um, so I actually think my answer today is, is healthier. No, absolutely. I agree with, I agree with you. 
Um, can you share with us some uh, personal qualities and skills that uh, you believe have contributed to your both personal and business success? <laughs> um, so you want me to tell you how I focus on myself? Listen, I, tr- I do whatever I can not to have ego. doesn't mean I don't, um, but I try. Um, I, I, I Listen, I've been super successful in life. I, I've been married to one woman for 26 years, going on 27 years. I have four... Congratulations. Very, yeah, thank you. Um, I have four you know, exceptional children um, that are all great kids. Um, hopefully, you know, that was mostly my wife. Um, I have, my parents are still alive. I have a good relationship with my parents. My sister I have a good relationship with. Um, so I, I think my quality is I've been a good family man. I, I've tried at least. Um, so that's probably my number one quality. I was able to keep my family as a whole. Um, a lot of executives can't. A lot of executives have significant time. We all have pressure. We all have, we all have an ability to take home our pressure. Um, I was, I think the biggest thing my wife would tell you is my, that I would go home and I did not talk business. And I actually think that was a salvation. I, I didn't, although my wife would bug me, bug me, what, why are you under pressure? I see it in your face. I, I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to rehash it. I didn't want her to feel the pressure. And so I think that was probably an attribute of mine. Um, and, you know, and candidly, um, I enjoy life. So, you know, when I've taken my family away, it's always been, you know, the best of. You know, it was trying to get them, you know, in the, in the best planes. And, and if they could go first class, great. If they couldn't, then we'd go coach, we'd go coach. Stay in a, nice, a nicer hotel. You know, whether I was still, you know, in the room on a computer answering all my emails, my 400 emails a day, um, I allowed them to pretty much enjoy their lives. And I allowed my kids to be kids. And um, although... I probably get criticized by other parents that attempt to lecture me that I treat my kids or I spoil my kids with luxury items and luxury cars and and everything. I never really believed that, in fact, that the spoiling of a kid was an indication of the success or the attributes of that child. And I really believed that, as a parent, I was very much focused on my kids enjoying their lives and having the best experience they can in their lives because none of us know, none of us know how long life is. I sit on the board of Make-A-Wish and, and I see children that, that go through major medical conditions or maybe not survive. And so who am I as a parent if I could afford it not to deliver the best quality of life for that child during that period of time since I have no idea when we all leave this planet. So I, I really focus on that. And that, that's proven out so far well for me because my two children, one has his master's degree, is director of budgeting here at Joshua, and he works his butt off. He doesn't go home till late at night, and he's the first one in, and so, you know, he always had a, a Mercedes or he always, a BMW, and he drove really nice cars, and so although he always had money in his pocket, um, he's working hard, and he's really good at it. And my second son, Chad, who quit college because he has a severe case of ADD, almost like his dad, um, you know, he's sitting there making an exceptional living on the real estate side of our business um, and, and working and traveling and, and, and enjoying life. And so I, I hope that that is something that I could say was, was a positive for you know, my, my, uh, my being of who I am. 
Um, and so I'm going to continue that. Clearly, I have with my last two kids, and my uh, son is in Indiana University, and he's uh, he has one more year. He'll be a senior next year. He's studying abroad in Barcelona, and then he wants to go to law school. Uh, and my daughter wants to be a veterinarian. So, um, so far, so good. Excellent. Um, so, changing gears a little bit, if you if you had to think back, the same the last ten years. What was your biggest mistake, and what would you do differently to avoid making that same mistake in the future? That's <laughs> uh, um, probably a two-part question for me because I think the biggest mistake I made in the last decade was being bored. So when I first started the company in 2002, it takes a long time for a company to grow. And so especially when you're building brand new freestanding locations, it could be two to six years for a school to be built um, with all the approvals that are required um, for a particular location, especially up north in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. So I was bored. And so I started the company, and I told you I had ADD. And so I'm focused, and I'm building, and I'm putting all the platforms in. But it wasn't. It didn't require a 12-hour day when I first started the business. Um, I just focused on growing the business and decided, you know, plant seeds everywhere and wait for them to grow. Um, and now we have, you know, a thousand employees and it is a twelve hour day. So so at the time it was two thousand, call it four, five, six, and real estate market was flying. So I I went into another business which was real estate and I got my butt slammed to me in two thousand eight and nine, uh, with the market. So, you know, I think the biggest mistake I, I had is is that I got bored and I lost focus on my core business and started focusing on other businesses. And so that, that, that cost a significant amount of money. Uh, not only did I survive it and do really well and made sure everyone got paid, but at the end of the day, um, I, think I think everybody should stay focused and not lose the energy and excitement in their core business. Um, so that's probably the mistake. And the second part of that is uh, I do wish I spent a little more time with my kids, um, seeing them grow up because life goes by so fast. And, and that childhood that a kid experienced or that wrestling match the kid goes through um, only happens once, and, and then it's done. And then you don't have a chance to do it again. Maybe I'll have the chance to do it with my grandkids, assuming I stay healthy. So um, so maybe those are the two parts of, the, of that question. Okay, thank you. Um, have you ever had a mentor? And if you have, who was he or she? And what impact did he or she have in your career? So my mentor was my father. Um, I was partners with my father for a long period of time, many, many years. Um, my father is um, hes kind of a drill sergeant in that regard. Um, he was a very, very tough boss, um, loved me to death, um, but I was a son, so he always expected so much more of me than anybody around me. Um, many of my friends don't know how I survived uh, during that period of time. Um, but the truth of the matter is he made me who I am. So it was, it's, it was, it's difficult to, to mold a, um, a, a executive or a CEO, but I would tell you that family businesses are very difficult. And, you know, I just talked about my kids in here, but truth be told that I would think that my father's goals was to get me independent self-motivated, self-thinking, <clears throat> exceptionally, an exceptional executive, exceptional CEO, um, and really smart. Um, 
and he accomplished all that. But when I accomplished it, he didn't have any strings on me anymore, and he didn't have any more control on me, and that was really hard for my father, really hard for my father. You know, I became my own person, and so I think everything he wished for me to be, I did, but when I became it, he got he wished, you know, I was still back in his control, so... Um, but he's, he was an unbelievable mentor, uh, but very, very tough. Okay. Um, um, at EO, we have five core values, and I, I like to use those five for the next five questions to uh, kind of uh, emphasize each one of those core values and, and see how they apply to your, your life. And they're uh, bold, boldly, boldly go, trust and respect, thirst for learning, making a mark, and cool. So, um, with uh, regards to being to boldly go, what are some risks that you've taken in the last five years? And and and, and pretending you were you were having the opportunity to talk to a future entrepreneur, and you were sharing some of these experiences with them. I got to believe that's the same for all executives or founders of companies. Uh, put everything on the line. You know, um, I'm being interviewed on tape right now, but the truth of the matter is um, the proper phrase is to put your, you know, your, your, your gonads on the line, and, and that's really what it is. Um, you know, if the company didn't survive, I would have been, I would have been up foreclosed on my house, and I would have been, um, you know, working somewhere else, trying to do it again and again and again. Um, it's, it's, it's a disease. Um, you know, entrepreneurs have a disease and not everyone can become an entrepreneur and not everyone has the gonads to be an entrepreneur. Some may think they do. Um, but the truth be told, um, we all take ridiculous risks, ridiculous risks. I mean, there were, there were times that I, I had, zero in the bank. There were times I owed IRS, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. There were times that I couldn't pay myself. There were times that I had to tell my wife we had to sell the house um, and move into a rental. I mean, that's, that's, that's ballsy um, to put your entire family at risk doing that. But that's what entrepreneurs do. And hopefully a majority of them are successful, but the majority aren't. And, and so, you know, you were either built for it or not. But the difference between ones that are successful and ones that aren't is, is the difference of tenacity, the difference of belief, and the difference in, in uh, the vigor that you have. And that is, is that we all fail. Um, Ray Kroc uh, failed multiple times. Uh, Walt Disney was on the, you know, had no money and being foreclosed by his banks. Um, you know, you can go on and on and on of executives that failed in prior, you know, uh, prior businesses. And, you know, my father did teach me one thing, and, and that one thing is we learn much, much more from our failures than we do from our successes. And the truth be told, I've had one concept that I tell everybody. I tell my franchisees and I tell everybody. We're not a culmination of our successes. We're a culmination of our failures. And what makes me a good CEO is my failures, not my successes. And so we all focus on, you know, our successes, but that's wrong. The, the truth is, is we're, we should be focusing on our failures so you don't do it again, and you've got to take your lessons from those failures. Um, and so I would tell you that the answer to that question is risk-taking. And, and really at the end of the day, when I'm 51 now, 
probably telling you I put my family at risk. But at the time, I probably never justified putting my family at risk. I never really thought about it as family at risk because I had to believe in myself. Um, mm-hmm. so it, but it's a big issue. That is an entrepreneur, taking risks. Okay. Um, what have you done both in your business and personally to promote trust and respect? Earned it. Never lie. Yeah. As honest as you can be, listen, honesty hurts. It really hurts. Most people want to be lied to. I, I don't care what you say. Most people want to tell you, you look great today. You're beautiful. You know, you're, you're the most brilliant person to ever work for me. You're smart. That's, you know, in many regards, it's bullshit. Excuse my language. It's, it's really about, about telling the truth because you can't better anybody without them knowing what the issue is. And so I will tell you I've earned respect from everybody around me probably multiple fa- factors, and one is the truth all the time, and no one's ever said you've lied to me. And they, they've, in many cases, said that hurts, but thank you. Um, and so that has driven a respect for me. Two, know your business better than anybody else. And so, you know, I, I, I know so many people that run businesses, and, they, and, and it drives me nuts. If I asked any one of my franchisees five questions, you know, what's your gross revenue, what's your payroll, what is your, you know, um, your uh, student count, what is your uh, tour and close ratios, I mean, go on and on. I ask you those questions, and you say to me, hold on, let me look at a piece of paper, I'll flip out. Flip out, because you don't know your business. You don't know your business. And so I know my business. If you ask me as something about my business or any of my employees ask my business, they know they better not come in here and waste my time and, bo- and, and, and give me a lot of you know, uh, whimsical theories because in the end of the day, I'm going to know in two minutes exactly what the issue is and how to resolve it. Um, and so I think being smart, being smart is really crucial, but knowing your business. You don't have to be the smartest person in your business, but you've got to know your business and focus on it. So not lying and knowing your business better than anybody else. And the third component of that is respect for the employee, um, mutual respect for the employee. Um, I ask a question. I probably wasn't really good at it when I was in my 20s or 30s, but I'm, I, I really work on ending conversations about what can I do for you to make your life easier. And if I see somebody under pressure, I'll say to them, how do I alleviate your pressure? How can I give you some time to put a smile back in your face and really focus on it? So really care about them. So you know, that's really what I've done, I think, to earn respect and, and get respect from them. Super. Um, in the last year, what have you done that it's been a great learning or personal growth opportunity? Um, <laughs> well, I really do focus on learning something new every day. Um, what have I done to, for the last 12 months? Um, I don't think I, I really have an answer for you on that. I, I think I, I really try to put my ego aside and, and tell you that I'm really eager to learn something new. I'm really eager to have other people tell me something uh, in my business um, and be honest with me about what they see and how they think they can better me. Um, so I, the only thing I could say in the last year is every year that I've gone a little older, um, 
I probably have gained patience. You know, they talk about the elderly having no patience. The truth of the matter is I actually think I have a lot more patience now than I did when I was younger. I have no patience. So I, I think every year I get a little older, I have a little bit more patience. All right. Um, what, and with, with regards to making a mark, what do you want your legacy to be after you're no longer in this earth? I was a great dad. That's awesome. Okay. And uh, next one, a little lighter than that. Uh, can you share with me something about you or your company that's cool? You know, I, I do, I do want to add one thing to that. Yeah. And not only was I a great dad, but I was a great son. Excellent. I'm sorry, what was the next question? So next one's, next question is a little bit lighter. It's uh, share with me something about you and or your company uh, that's cool. <laughs> Um, that's cool. Um, since your audience is probably both male and female, I'll save me being cool because it's probably more of a guy thing. Um, but from a from a perspective of my company, um, we we've had the ability, and we're just rolling out. Our characters have come to life, so we went through an entire. Um, it was actually quite fun. We went through an entire array for years now creating personality to our characters creating voice characters um, to creating voice to our characters and we've been able to bring our characters to life so we now have an entire kind of children's television series with our characters coming to life and created their personalities and we we play that at the centers and now we're talking to uh, distribution channels about getting them on mass media um, and focusing on that and, and that is just so different for our industry and so that's just really cool really cool to be able to go watch on television uh, or watch on our whiteboard to watch on my computer right now all our characters will come to life and and then see it see how it, how it how the children's faces are at our centers when they actually see bubbles the elephant tell a story time or bubbles the elephant have uh, mischievous uh, the flamingo talk to him about recycling and you know in all parts of our character. It's just just really really cool. And if you saw it, can't see it on the phone right now, but if you saw it, it would just be a really neat endeavor for uh, for most people that didn't understand our company to understand. All right, so uh, I know we've taken a long time. I got I have a few more questions, but I'm going to try to kind of combine them into one one general question regarding you know thoughts about succession. Uh, obviously with your um, couple of your sons already in the business, um, long-term vision for your company, and uh, have you contemplated an exit strategy? Um, so, so the answer is succession. So my, my kids are still young. They're in their 20s. Um, so I don't believe that succession is my kids. Um, I hopefully they're with the business for a long period of time. A succession can be talked about years from now when they mature. Um, but I've already been working on succession, and um, I just brought on a chief operating officer who was the uh, head uh, worldwide of Starbucks operation. Um, great branding, huge fan of Starbucks. Uh, ran all the had a four billion dollar balance sheet. He was responsible for. Um, and so I'm real excited he joined it. He just joined us about four weeks ago, so he's in his learning curve right now. So my goal with, with him, if he can accomplish it, 
is that that would move me into the chairman's role and he could assume the CEO role. But that won't happen until, one, I'm ready, and two, he's ready. So um, it's probably a couple years from now if that effectively takes place. That that would be the closest thing that I plan for succession. Um, I I don't know if I'll remove myself from chairman of the board um, in the near future. as far as the goals and affirmations of the company um, is to continue its growth uh, trajectory to probably become a public company uh, sometime in its future. Um, that is not just predicated on the company's growth, but predicated on uh, both market um, and governmental interference, so on how they dictate to the cost factors to be a public company, um, so like Sornby and Oxley and everything else. So you know, I would think that um, this company will be a public company. Um, I guess that the number one goal of the company is to be around long past my life. So um, hopefully this is a brand that will have a a very long uh, life cycle to it. And and hopefully the company is in its teenage years right now and has a a long future ahead of it. Excellent. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with the listeners? no, you know, I, I think I've been as honest as possible, um, and candidly, um, I, I, you're, you're speaking to me in 2015, and, but if you were speaking to me in 2000 or 1995, my answers would have been very different, and so I'm happy that I've matured enough uh, to be as honest as I can about, uh, about where we are, about myself, and, and, the, uh, and, the, and the thought process I have of being an entrepreneur and growing a company, so uh, I think you pretty much captured it. If if listeners of the podcast would like to get in contact with you, uh, can you uh, uh, tell us what the best way of uh, contacting you would be and how to learn more about your company? Sure. Uh, it's uh, clearly on our website, which is uh, the learning, com. Um, our headquarters is in Boca Raton, Florida, uh, and I, anyone's more than welcome to visit with us. Um, they can call me at our corporate headquarters at uh, 561-886-6400 um, and speak to me anytime they want and just ask for myself. I'd be happy to talk to other entrepreneurs. I have lectured at major universities. I've lectured at Harvard. I've lectured at Florida Atlantic University, two uh, inspiring entrepreneurial classes. Um, and candidly, uh, I do enjoy doing that. Um, and so, you know, I've tried to... You know, help everyone that I meet. Uh, just this morning, one of my friend's sons came for advice for me. So I'll do whatever I can to promote entrepreneurial spirit. Listen, I'm not the most successful entrepreneur, but I'm very successful. You know, um, I, I had, I think, some of my best meetings to promote me um, was I met Wayne Heisinger back in the 90s when I had first started you know, franchising my business. I asked him how about franchising, and he spent a couple hours with me, and that was exceptional absolutely exceptional. And so, like Wayne, uh, promoting entrepreneurial spirit, spirit, I certainly think I need to pass that on to others as well. So I'm happy to help. Richard, uh, I really, really appreciate the time that you've taken to uh, speak with us and and, uh, participate in this podcast. I think it's going to be extremely uh, beneficial for anybody who listens to it. And um, again, I want to thank you for your time I thank you. I really appreciate your interest in me. That's all for this inspiring episode of the South Florida Entrepreneurs on Fire. Thanks for listening.
If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. For more information about the Entrepreneurs' Organization of South Florida, visit www.eosoflow.com.